If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 7 as we continue along uh, in our series. This morning, we're going to look at verses 14 through 25 as we pick up with the very first signs and wonder or plague, if you will, uh, in the book of Exodus. As we begin to unpack what this means and begin to see, it is not lost on us about the economic calamity uh, and what is happening as Dr. Greenway prayed overseas in the country of Ukraine. An atrocious thing to have any man or any country to believe that they can invade the sovereignty of another nation. We have sister churches that exist in the country of Ukraine. We have Baptist ministers that believe in the same God that we believe in, that trust in the same doctrine that we believe in, that are there to pick up the pieces. And so today we remember them and we speak of them and their faithfulness to the call, their faithfulness to the mission that God has given on Monday of this past week, many of you perhaps watched as Russia began to move in and you began to see the market, if you will, here in this country, the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ or the S&P, whatever it is that you follow, you begin to notice very quickly that it was down close to 800 points. The economic calamity that comes with things that are quite far removed from here in the great state of Texas, yet we see them and we are a part of them and we participate in them. Only to see the following day that that uh, 800 points that it went down, it skyrocketed back up and it began to correct itself, but we see the economic calamity that existed in that moment. And for many of us, perhaps, we were reminded for just a moment of what it is that we are trusting in, what it is that we are hoping in. And here in the book of Exodus, we find ourselves in a place where God caused economic calamity in the life of a group of people, the Egyptians in particular, but the Hebrews were not immune to either. And so if you would read with me, beginning in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 7, as we read just the first three verses, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Therefore, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out into the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. And then God begins one of his most miraculous deeds in front of Pharaoh. As he begins to turn the river banks of the Nile into streaming banks of blood. I'd understand the significance of this moment and what it is that God has done in this moment. We must take a larger picture and sort of back up just for a moment to understand what it is that God is going to do in this moment. You see, the Nile River to the Egyptians was everything to them. 
It was their mode of transportation. It was their source of nourishment. It was their standard for measurement. It was their object for worship. It was where all of their affections lie. Therefore, it was no better way in this moment in Exodus 7 for the God of Israel to show that he was Lord over all the gods of Egypt in this moment than by turning the Nile into blood. And this river of blood, make no mistake, it affected everything. You see, in the land of Egypt, there were over 80 major deities that were clustered around really three central things that we're going to see. God began to display his power and God began to display his glory in the midst of the Nile, in the midst of the land in which they existed, and in the midst of the sky that they observed. The first two plagues or the signs and wonders that we see will directly affect the Nile River. The next four will affect the land and the following four will affect and come from the sky, ending in the culmination of the killing of the firstborn. But I want you to see here in this moment, as the Lord says to Moses, how God deals with Pharaoh. That his terms in this moment to the most powerful man in all of the known kingdom, his terms are non-negotiable. If there is no compromise in his voice, there is no ally that would exist that when the Lord says it, the Lord demands it and he commands of his people in this moment, his terms and his demands are non-negotiable. Every time that he confronts Pharaoh, his terms never change. He never offers a counter offer. Friend, we're reminded of the psalmist where he says in Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Meaning this, that when the Lord says something, he means it. When the Lord demands something of his people, he most certainly means it. And he asks of his people to walk in a pattern, in a rhythm of, of faithfulness, and in a rhythm of obedience. What was true for Pharaoh in this moment in the time of Exodus is true for us today in terms of, of salvation, in terms of how we are to offer our lives and to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. The terms of salvation today are still non-negotiable. No one in this room or in other rooms in this city or state or in this country can come to the Father except through the Son. That it is non-negotiable. That there are not multiple ways that ultimately lead to us being in heaven and being with our Father. The terms are still the same. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same message thousands of years ago that echo true even here today. But I want you to notice in verse 16 when the text says, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me in the wilderness. This word serve here comes from the Hebrew word adad, and it's the same word that's used back in chapter one of Exodus, chapter of Exodus one. 
It's meant to describe Israel's slavery to the Egyptians in that moment, but yet God begins to transition and he says that in this moment you were to let my people go, not that they would serve Pharaoh and the idols of the land and the gods of the land, but rather you would let my people go that they may serve me. Yet Pharaoh's heart in this moment was hard. And the question that we ask when we see the hardened heart of Pharaoh is why was his heart so hardened towards the things of God? And the answer to that question is quite simple. It was because Pharaoh's heart belongs to all the other gods that existed within his world. You see, in this story, we are not Moses and we are not Aaron, but we as a people are Pharaoh because our hearts belong at times to all the other gods in this world. And Pharaoh began to harden his heart and he began to resist what God was doing. And so God begins to encounter him on the banks of the Nile. As Moses waits in this moment with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh goes down to the water and scholars begin to speculate what the reason for that was. Some would say that he goes down to take an early morning bath in the river of the Nile to cleanse himself. Others would say that as we know from history that these temples that existed within these 80 deities that existed all throughout the land oftentimes would find themselves being built up around the Nile. And so it's not naive in this moment to speculate that the Pharaoh goes down to the river to pay homage to one of his gods. And as he approaches the banks, God is waiting on him through the form of Moses. And in verse 17, it says, thus says the Lord, but you shall know that I am the Lord Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Friend, can I tell you this morning that any time that we see the phrase, thus says the Lord, God is about to do something significant He is about to be very deliberate in what he does. And we never want to be on the receiving end of that phrase, thus says the Lord, because oftentimes when that phrase is used throughout the Old Testament, it is used and followed by his judgment on his people. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Moses made it clear in that moment that he was speaking in the name of the Lord by the authority of the, of the Lord. In his hand, he holds the rod of God, the symbol of the authority that God had given to him and, and placed upon him. And with his words, he begins to pronounce over Pharaoh in the land of Egypt this divine judgment and what a judgment it was. For we read in the following verses in 18, it says, the fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile and the Lord then says to Moses say to Aaron take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over the rivers and their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone therefore Moses verse 20 and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants 
presence. He lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. See, it's not lost on us in this moment that as God issues his divine judgment in the place of this first plague and the sign of the signs and wonders as the scripture calls it, God executes his judgment through the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Finally, we begin to see the Moses that we all revere, the Moses that we look up to in this moment as they follow to the T everything that God had commanded them to do. God tells them to go and he tells them to say and he tells them to take and he tells them to stretch out their rod. And they did all of these things just as God commanded them. This shows us in this moment, Travis family, how much God can accomplish through his people if they will only do as they are told. If we would just walk in obedience, if we would just say the things that God tells us to say and to take and to stretch and to go, to walk in faithfulness, in a pattern of faithfulness. Oh, how God could use us for his service and for his kingdom. What this teaches us of all the flaws in Moses' life, his inability to speak and to be rescued. What this teaches us is that God's pattern for deliverance is to use deeply flawed people to rescue those who are as deeply flawed as them. And it's a reminder in this moment That we as a people of God are as deeply flawed as the people that we evangelize and as we share and as we proclaim to. We are no different than the man on the street in need of a desperate savior. We are the same person created in the image of God, deeply flawed in ways that, that we know and our spouses know and perhaps our kids know, but most importantly, that God knows. God is in the business of using deeply flawed people to call other flawed people out of the kingdom of darkness to rescue them. And he uses you and me deeply flawed as we are. One of the things that I was struck by this week and in remembering the life of Moses was how many times prior to chapter six and chapter seven, how, how many times we see the deep flaws that existed within Moses's life. His inability to to follow through and to do precisely what it was that God had asked him to do. Yet we begin to see this shift beginning in chapter 7 of Moses and Aaron walking in a pattern of, of faithfulness, not letting their prior disobedience, not letting their prior misunderstanding determine today how it is that they were going to follow and choose to follow God. And I think it teaches us this profound thing that our past failures do not determine today's obedience. Meaning the mistakes that we have made yesterday and weeks prior, that they have no bearing on on what we do today as we seek to walk in a a rhythm and in a pattern of, of faithfulness to do the things that God has called us to do. The mistakes that we have made do not determine who we are today. But rather Christ does in his 
kingdom. Yet in this moment, as God turns this river, this source, this lifeblood to this blood to understand how distressing this was for the Egyptian people and even the Hebrews in this moment, we must understand that this Nile River, it was everything to them. It was their source of transportation. It was how they moved goods from city to city across countries and across grounds. It provided this transportation to help them move things. It formed irrigation systems. In other words, in order for them to grow food and crops, this Nile was the source of everything. And so by God turning this river into blood, miraculously, he eliminates all of those things. There was no food. There was no means of transportation. These floods that these Egyptians would pray for on an annual basis. And they would worship these made-up gods in this moment that the floods would, would rise up to a certain level to bring in this new soil so they could grow crops and develop goods and, and foods. And, and so they would pray and they would create these gods in this moment. The Nile was always at its lowest point in May and it began to rise up in June as the Egyptians began to worship it. And around July and, and August is when the Nile would, would peak and it would bring in this, this soil for them to, to plant crops and to garden. And were it not for the flood, the Egyptians would be as desolate as the deserts on either side. It wasn't just about this. And so what the Egyptians began to do is they began to worship this river. They began to create gods of their own. The famous god of the underworld by the name of Osiris was depicted oftentimes within Egyptian art as the Nile River running through his bloodstream. It was the life blood of the god of the underworld. The god of Nu, N-U, was the god of life in the river. It was the one that created the crocodiles and the fish and all the sustenance that existed. The god known as Happy, the fertility god, portrayed as a, a bearded man with a pregnant stomach. The idea was was that the annual flooding gave birth to Egypt and it nursed its strength and happy would oftentimes as the source of it, he would appear in the form of the crocodile. So you can imagine just for a moment as that river turns to blood, these crocodiles that scurried up on the banks of the Nile. This God happy that existed in that moment that the Egyptians worshiped all of the sudden in that moment, he was left to escape the river of the Nile, the waters of the Nile. And he, he found refuge out of the water in which the thing that they worship with one single blow, God demonstrates his power and his sovereignty over all of the Egyptian gods. In one moment, he gives them a food and a water shortage. He shuts down their transportation. He impends upon them a financial disaster and a spiritual crisis. And he did it all by turning blood, by turning the river into blood and making the object of their worship a thing of horror. You don't have to think back too long when COVID began to come and we began to see food shortages we begin to see transportation shutdowns. 
We began to see the stock markets go up and down and, and lose value over and over the economic calamity that existed in this moment over the past two years. We have seen in this moment that the people of Exodus, the Egyptians, and even the people of God in this moment, they experience what they worshiped becomes the very thing of horror before them. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 19, when he says that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Oftentimes when the Bible speaks of vessels of wood and vessels of stone, it usually speaking in terms of, of idols, little carved out figures that would exist. This wasn't necessarily the pots that they would store water in as some scholars would conject, but rather in this moment, what he's saying is, is that some Egyptologists claim that the priest every morning, they would take their vessels of wood and their vessels of stone, these carved out idols that existed that they worshiped and they would go to cleanse them. They would wash them with water every morning by rite and, and by ritual. And yet what God says in this moment, if this is true that they would do that, that when God issues this first signs and wonder, this first plague, that they washed their idols in the water that had turned into blood. God demonstrating to those priests and, and even those magicians how utterly worthless and contemptible it was to worship gods of wood and to worship gods of just stone. I don't find it difficult to believe that in this moment, one day, perhaps God would do the same thing to the gods of this age. He would break down the idols that exist deep within our hearts. And he would cause the calamity that existed upon the Egyptians. Why? To bring us back to him. Amen. To break us of our dependency upon other things. To remind us in our deepest needs that we deeply need him. It says in verse 24 that all the Egyptians began to dig along the Nile for water to drink. I was struck by that phrase this past week and sort of got hung up on it for a little bit. And it was a reminder, I think, in that moment that you have these Egyptians that are scurrying around on the banks of the Nile, digging these holes, trying to find some fresh water to be able to drink, to find some substance in that moment. And what I believe that that reminder is and why he says, and all the Egyptians dug for water to drink, is that even in judgment... God provides mercy. Even in judgment, God shows the way of the merciful. And so they dug along the Nile, for they could not drink the water, and seven full days began to pass. Seven full days begin to pass. God providing his merciful way and God has promised that in this moment these magicians that come in verse 22 they do the same by their secret arts 
their demonic activity, as we've talked about in previous weeks. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen. And Pharaoh turned and he goes into his house and he didn't even take to heart all that he was doing. And so these magicians come and they practice and notice again, this repetition of what they began to do is only to duplicate what God had done. Perhaps if they were true in what they were doing, they would have undone the blood and turned it back into water. But all they could do was manipulate and to replicate what it is in the appearance of what God has done. This is how Satan mocks us. This is how Satan begins to deceive us within these secret arts in this moment. These magicians of Egypt, they do the same thing. You see, God has promised us elsewhere in scripture that his invisible war with Satan one day, whom we believe in this moment that God was going head to head with in the court of the Pharaohs, Satan will ultimately end with the defeat of every false God. And God has promised us elsewhere within the scriptures in Revelation chapter 16 in particular, that on the day of judgment, he will replicate and he will do again what we see him do in Exodus 7. In Revelation 16, beginning in verse 3, God executes this promise and he says this, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true, and just are your judgments. You see, in this moment, what the author of Exodus is doing, what God is doing, he is teaching us in this moment not to trust in other gods because ultimately those other gods will not save us as a people. That there is only one redeemer. There is only one savior. There is only one who is worthy of our praise and our time and our attention. There is only one who is worthy of our affections and his name is Jesus. He is our redeemer. He is our rescuer. He is the one who has relieved us and who has pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Exodus teaches us not to trust in these other gods that we worship, but to remind us that they will not save us, but only he will save us. Can I tell you that if I was living in the country of Ukraine at the moment, Perhaps that statement would be more real to me. Perhaps that belief and that understanding that it perhaps is only God that would save me and that would deliver me from what is happening before us. Brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God, who believe the same things that we believe in, who worship in churches just as this, yet in this moment, there is their Nile River, if you will, has been turned into blood. 
the economic calamity that exists in that moment. They experience the things that the people of Exodus experience. And so they call upon the name of the Lord to save them and to redeem them. Friend, if you're here today and you've not called upon his name, can I plead with you to give your life to him, to trust in him, to call upon his name, to deliver you from your sins that separate you from our heavenly father, to to confess with your mouth, to believe in your heart that he is who he says he is. And the Bible says that anyone who would call upon his name would be saved today in this moment to be delivered of their sins. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would deliver us just as you delivered the people of Egypt, the Hebrews, from Pharaoh. That you would deliver us from our sin, from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. And Father, would you change us not according to our own ways, but according to your word. Would you help us walk in a season of faithfulness and obedience? For we ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said.